When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. Um, after recently having our first uh, BAFTA nominee on, we've now got our first Academy Award winner. Uh, welcome, Gareth Ellis Unwin. Hi. Hi, Stuart. You're right. Very well, thank you. Very well. Um, now, we've, we've, we're talking about a, a fairly unique film, I think it's safe to say, in terms of the way it's been sort of pulled together and what's happened on, upon release. Um is it, is, do I pronounce it Kayaki? Kayaki? Uh, no, it's actually it's a hard J, so it's Kajaki, the true story. Okay. Uh, do you want to give us a brief synopsis of the of the story? Sure. Well, um, Kajaki is uh, about a, a real life event that took place in two thousand and six in Helmand Province, where there was a group of uh, British Army that was stationed at the Kajaki Hydroelectric Dam. Um, basically, they saw an illegal roadblock had been set up and witnessed a family being murdered. So, uh, were understanding orders to be able to engage, but they realised that they couldn't engage from their operating position by mortar because of the potential for sort of civilian uh, collateral damage. So, they decided that they were going to move forward a hill ridge, um, and that would bring them into sniping range. So, a patrol of three guys. Um, headed off to move forward and um, their journey took them into a dried out riverbed or wadi um, and uh, the guy at the front of the patrol, Stu Hale, got pinged by an AP mine, uh, lost a leg, um, a rescue party was formed, they came in to the wadi to try and effect an evacuation and during the process of the evacuation attempt um, another mine went off and that damaged another two guys, um, which then meant that they were just entrenched, couldn't, couldn't go forward, couldn't go backwards. Uh, the only salvation would come from above. Um, the helicopter that was sent wasn't, wasn't properly equipped, and so um, the evacuation didn't take place in the, in the timely fashion that they thought it might. And in the process of that, uh, that part of the, the evacuation attempt, a further mine went off, uh, that uh, critically injured um, one of the one of the troop, a guy called Corporal Mark Wright, who then, through amazing bravery, determination, bulldog spirit, whatever you want to call it, um, mm. kept his team alive for a number of hours. 
Um, the sequence of events contains, you know, some really dark gallows humour, um, some amazing heroism, some guile, some, some real sort of intelligent soldiering. And long story short, you know, he managed to keep his troop alive for long enough for them to be rescued by the, uh, the American Air Force. Um, sadly, Mark actually uh, died on the, uh, the MERT, the, the Medical Evacuation Response Team, um, transport back to Bastion, and was uh, posthumously awarded the George Cross for his bravery on that day. Mm. And and I was uh, it was interesting reading that that, that the, um, the 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 sort of idea from uh, Tom Tom uh, Williams the writer sort of began in two thousand eight during the inquest about Mark Wright was wasn't it? Yeah, I mean to, Tom and the director Paul Cates had a, an interest in um, army, an army story. They had previously been working with the MOD on a training film. Um, funnily enough, a training film about health and safety at work, which sounds like a bit of a nonsense, but um, more injuries um, and fatalities happen through the sort of health and safety issues than the necessary direct conflict. But it was it was during this training film that they were working on together that they got to meet a bunch of um, young soldiers and it hit upon them that they, they knew little of these guys' lives and one of the lads celebrated his 18th birthday. They did a cake, sang him a happy birthday hmm. and two weeks later he was out in Helmand, um, which is quite sort of poignant really. And it was in the sort of selection of focusing down on the Mark Wright story um, that a number of sort of things were discovered one it's um you know it is it's it's a story that takes place in war but it isn't necessarily a war story you know there isn't a bullet fired in anger within our film or within the the, the real life events you know the enemy as it were the unseen enemy is actually the legacy of war and the legacy of the soviets being in there in the 1980s and, and leaving a lot of ap uh, mines there and so it gave Tom and Paul an opportunity to tell a story that could remain politically agnostic, you know, not needing yeah. to make a comment on the whys, the wheres, the should they, shouldn't they be there. Mm. But just look at the heroism and the guys on the ground on that particular day doing some fairly incredibly brave things. Mm. Um, and I think that was the, you know, that lit the blue touch paper for, for, for both Paul and Tom. Um, and, and like I said at the outset, it's, it's it's a fairly sort of unusual sort of release. Certainly, some of the stories I've been reading around it, you know, the 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 notion of the sort of no production, no commercial production company funding it, privately privately financed, and then the the direct distribution deal done with View Cinema, which was covered quite proudly by the CEO at uh, Screen Film Summit on Monday, um, and then ultimately you're you're raising money for key military charities via the ticket sales. Um, how did that become part of the, the sort of makeup of the film, as it were? Or was that always the intention once it started to get into development? Well, I think, um, I think you have to separate the two things out. One, one is the raise, which mm. is, you know, how did we get the money together uh, to actually go and shoot and, and to, to create a finished piece of film content? Mm. And then secondly, the, the, the rather boutique distribution strategy. Yeah. So just looking at the, the raise originally... So, um, you know, Paul, although he is a, a very well-versed uh, director of note within a slightly different field, this was his first feature. And, you know, historically, it's very difficult to finance first-time film directors. I mean, that is just 
the way you know the way the, the way of the land as it were yeah um i think also added into the mix that you know quite often when you're doing a raise through traditional methods the first thing you do is you pull together five comps and you try and evidence strong box office performance and and that was impossible in this situation because there was only one other film um, that had looked at afghanistan uh, there hasn't been a film on the falklands there hasn't been a film on on uh, a number of our other recent um you know, military conflict. So you end up having to look back as far as 1950 to find a British war film. So, you know, there's a number of things that just weren't making it easy for for the film to become financed. It had the, I wouldn't say an accurate assumption, but the assumption was that it was going to be political, it was going to be agitprop, it was going to be, you know, um, maligning the MOD, it was going to be causing, you know, question of, of government and, and that was never the film that we wanted to make had it been that i think some of the traditional funding sources may have um become a bit more interested so we realized that we were going to have to come up with something quite unique in terms of how we would finance the film and andrew de Lobinier, lucy trendle uh alexa jago alec mckenzie all part of the producing team yeah. um, had a number of different sort of experiences or contacts that they could bring to bear um, Andrew and Lucy set up the Indiegogo campaign, which was crowdfunding. The ask was 40 grand. We, we raised 48, and that gave us the fuel to uh, hold investor lunches, to go out and recce in Jordan, to do other bits and pieces. So it was the trip to Jordan that then introduced us to Alec McKenzie. Alec is um, very closely tied with the Royal Court there. He is an ex-serving military officer from, from Britain, um, you know, and got us this great access into... Uh, the Jordanian Armed Forces, who supplied helicopters, manpower, logistics, weapons. Um, so that was a big, big saving. Um, and then we started to just bang the drum with, uh, you know, there are a number of people that have served in the military yeah. and gone on to successful careers on City Street. Um, <laughs> there were a number of those that were happy to dig deep to, to put money into the film, who got what we were trying to do with the film, who got what we were trying to say about the modern British soldier, um, there was, uh, you know, our, our post-production partners, Lip Sync, uh, came in with a big chunk of equity, so we did a post-equity deal with them. They secured the uh, the work to, to do all of the finishing on the film, and for that they ponied up some cash. Um, and then I used some of my contacts um, within the sort of gap bridge lending market to, to, to top things out. So um, that's how we did the, the, the raise. Um, and the reason we, we did it was because there was an immediacy to us wanting to get shooting. We had an opportunity in terms of a window of availability of some of the military assets in Jordan. Um, and more importantly, we knew that we had a clear route to market and that this year, with it being the commemoration of the, the world, 100 years of World War One, poppies at the tower, the fact that Bastion was closing and the flag was coming down in Afghan. Yeah. There's all these sort of great sort of moments of synergy that were pointing us quite clearly to getting on release this year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was the, that's the raise side of things. Yeah. In terms of the distribution, and, and sadly I, I wasn't there on, on uh, the Screen Film Finance Forum, so I'd love to hear what the CEO was actually saying. He was, he was more, it was more just part of the general conversation, but he was pointing out the idea of the direct distribution 
being yeah. a model that exhibitors can use and, and sort of using that as an example. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, 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 what what sort of... Okay, I mean, very simply, um, direct distribution only works within a film of a certain size where you can actually point to a motivated audience and evidence that to an exhibitor and be able to explain how you're going to reach them. So with us on this film, we felt that we've got, you know, there are a couple of hundred thousand serving um, men and women who, who are in the armed forces. There are yes. obviously the families and friends of those. There are... I think 4.3 million veterans in the UK. Um, so we felt that there was this motivated audience that we could evidence and, and approach. And one of the important things about how we would reach them, not having the deep pockets of a traditional distributor, was to use the access points of these charities. So the ask of the charities were quite simple. It was, OK, we're going to offer you a corridor in the film to make some money. And we are asking, in return for that, that you connect us into your charitable diaspora of people that are motivated to support Health Heroes, Walking with the Wounded and, and Royal British Legion. Mm. We did also bring a Jordanian charity in, in recognition of the, of the benefit in kind that uh, the Jordanian Armed Forces had, had offered us. Yeah. Um, and so this sort of symbiotic relationship uh, developed with us and the charities, and what started to become clear was that if you go for a traditional model where I'm a producer, I have a film, I go to a sales agent, that sales agent represents the film for me and sells it into a distributor, that distributor agrees to distribute the film within a given territory across multiple exploitation windows, then has to engage with an exhibitor to get the film on in the cinemas or a sub-distributor to get the DVDs and Blu-ray into the home end. Um, you know, that margin that we're affording the charities starts to sit very low down the recruitment waterfall and so Paul Andrew and I looked at this and, and, and just sort of did an assessment and just said okay right let's take the brakes off a bit of sort of free thinking here what can we do to elevate that position that the charities share um, further up the recruitment waterfall so they're not sat behind a load of other people's money um, well, firstly, we could maybe have a, 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 a long conversation with sales agents, with distributors, and try and get them to see the charity almost as an expense off the top. Now, I could have I probably could have negotiated that, but it would have taken a lot of time, a, a lot of detailed thinking, and got people to think, you know, in a slightly different way. So, one thing we do own is our own time, our own thinking, our own resources, and the film. <laughs> and within the yeah, film, yeah, there yeah. is inherent value. Yeah, yeah. I had a very early conversation with a guy called Stuart Borman at View, and I said, look, Stuart, we were talking about this a couple of years ago. We were probably thinking of something that was a little bit more art house and smaller, but I've got this project. I think there's an audience there for it. I want to in involve the charities. I want the charities to see some proper money out of this. Um, why don't we do a direct deal? So I will bring a P&A budget a print and advertising budget to bear on this. Hmm. We'll pay for the paid ads, we'll do newspaper advertising, I'll petition a number of the sort of outdoor advertising channels to do it free of charge. You know, I'll do I'll do this and you know I promise I will I will promote the film to a value of X hundred thousand pounds. So you know that it's going to have presence. Second to that, I think it's actually going to be a good film. So the reviews will be strong and, and people will embrace it. Um, and I remember the conversation I had with him. I, thought, I said to him, look, I've got, I've got three levels of taking the piss here. 
Um, the first level of taking the piss is that I really want to have that big West End uh, premiere for the veterans, for the cast, the crew. I want them to feel like the film that they've made is as worthy as, as any of these other big films that secure a, a West End prem. So I need some screen space to do that. Will you work me? And he said, absolutely, that's not a problem. And then I said, well, I really need to bang the drum regionally. I need to be able to start to get some momentum building ahead of the release of the film. And what I want to do is a, a, a regional tour where we visit, firstly, Mark's hometown, the guy that died, but then the, uh, the, the hometowns of each of the surviving veterans that are, you know, a significant role in the, in the film. And so we organised this four-day tour that took in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Leeds and Bristol. And then I said the third, the third level of the piss take is I want to I want to work with you, direct. Um, you know, we have the film, we'll promote it, we'll cover the paid ads. You know, you'll need to wear certain expenses internally, um, but we do a deal and we share the box office. And that then meant that where we put our charities in, sat at the head of the the queue on our share, so our side of the share. Once the the film has recouped its costs, the charities get ten percent. Um, and I, I thought that that was, you know, it was brave of him to agree to do it. It was brilliant that View tried it. I think they're, you know, they've enjoyed the relationship. They've seen the film perform um, quite well. Um, you know, and it's something that we can all be proud of. We've been able to take a model that maybe bends the industry norms mm. um, to do the right thing. And the right thing is to support these charities and to get this story out there. So... That's my the thing I sort of am taking a lot of pride from at the moment that we've actually got you know our industry to do the right thing. Indeed, I mean, and, and, and plus it's admittedly there is there is that big emotive angle, but but also in in a, in a more pragmatic sense, it's it's shown how you can get British films into British cinemas and seen by British audiences. Yeah, which was which was kind of the genesis of where the uh, the view the view. CEO was talking about in terms of you know how answering the question how do we get British films into cinema? <laughs> mm. uh, Talk to the cinemas. Indeed, I mean, it, it, it's sort of. It, I mean, I know that sounds trite, but I mean, it, it, it almost reminds me of. Um, it's quite funny. I sat on a talent lab uh, at a foreign film market a few months ago. Mm. The uh, the the focus of the um, event was improving producer revenues by working more closely with distributors and exhibitors. And we went around the table and introduced ourselves. And there wasn't one exhibitor in the room, there wasn't one distributor in the room. Oh, and I just went, well, hang on a minute, if we're supposed to be having a conversation about these relationships, we have to have both sides of the relationship clear and present and talking. Mm. Um, you know, and I think really, really, you know, more power to their elbow if you entertain the idea I think it's come off well for them. You know, we are at the eve of breaking the film out wider. Um, you know, we're sort of, you know, an advanced stage of conversations with Showcase and Odeon and all of the independents. So, yeah, it's been, um, it's been an exciting ride. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Can I, I mean, the, the, other, the other part of the exciting ride, it would seem, is that you only started shooting in August, is that right? Yeah, nuts, isn't it? Um, <laughs>
Yeah, that, mean, that's know. not usual. I mean, let, let's make this clear for, for people listening. That's not a usual time frame, is it? For... Absolutely not. You know, historically, the way that you'd normally put a film together is that you would have a, a sort of, you know, beyond the development period where you get the script right, you get your key players in, in, in position, you know your director, you know the writer that you're working with, you've got a sense of your route to market. So that all sits in that sort of development stage. But as soon as you hit pre-production, you're normally talking a period of 10 to 12 weeks of getting ready. You know, your average British independent film of a certain size probably has a shooting schedule of between seven and 10 weeks. You then go into post-production and post-production historically is normally about 18 weeks and then a couple of weeks for final finishing and, and delivery. So you're talking about a period of, I mean, you know, the usual way of doing it is about 36 weeks from the point that you say, right, we're starting prep to the day that you hand over the DCP. And I think on this, although it was longer in development and gestation than is usual from the point that Paul and Andrew pulled the trigger, mm. I think we were cast and into shoots within six weeks four-week shoot, we were cutting alongside the, the, the shootout in Jordan to make sure that we didn't miss any anything, um, and it meant that within four weeks, we had a within four weeks of coming back, so what's that? So six, four, and four, eight, 14. So within 14 weeks, we're at the point of a director's cut. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. yeah. But I think, you know, I mean, testament to Paul and his ability to be able to pull that off. He, you know, is incre incredibly... Um, efficient with what he shoots and how he operates and how he works. Um, you know, he's tough to keep up with, but I think you know to be able to, you know, I, you know, I don't, I don't want the thing that makes people take notice is the speed of what we've done here. I think mm. what needs to be first and foremost is the quality of the work. Mm. And Paul, the cast, the writer, the production team, you know, the production company, everyone to a man and woman mm. has stepped up and delivered. A remarkable film, you know, and that's being recognised in the reviews and in the audience reviews and the exit polls. Of course. Um, what, what, from from your point of view, what what is it that appeals about dramatising real stories? Uh, um, well, funnily enough, my first film wasn't. My first film was an absolute fabrication. Um, the second one, obviously, King's Speech, was um, Zaytoun was based in reality, but yeah. was really a true story. Well, but... I mean, I guess, I guess I am sort of looking. I mean, obviously, Exam wasn't, but King's Speech was. Yeah, Zaytoun uh, has a has a has a toehold in in history too... in terms of the political context is right and and where our story takes place. It's just yeah. that that particular event didn't happen, and, and then this is an absolute true story. I mean, I you know I I like to think, and this sounds a bit wanky, that that all of my films um, sort of make a comment or observe the human condition. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the human condition is best recognised under the duress of reality. Yeah. You know, and I think that these wonderful stories that you find where fact is indeed, you know, truer than fiction or more amazing than fiction, um, is just something that calls to me. I mean, the truth of it is, is that the next one that I'm planning for next year is as far apart from the last two as you could possibly imagine. It's a romantic comedy that takes place in the home counties and it's all chocolate box England and, and lots, of, uh, lots of fun and humour. Um, but I've done, yeah, I've done um, Sun, Sand and Boys uh, a little too much in the last couple of years. I'm going to go off and do do something different next. But I was, I, was, I mean, I was, I was it, what led me to that question was looking at some of the stuff you got on uh, Bedlam's 
sort of in develop in development with your production. Yeah. The the, um, the lady who went too far and Spitfire yep. Girls. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the lady who went too far, or, or, or as it's now known, Star of the Morning, um, is just a fantastic story. You know, yeah. it's just um, incredible that people don't know of Lady Hester Stanhope. Well, I didn't, I didn't, to be honest. What's that? You didn't either. <laughs> no, no. This is, the, you know, this is the joy of finding these true stories, is that you do have that sort of scratchy head moment when people realise, it's like, oh, wow. And she really existed, and it isn't all <laughs> fabrication. So Hester, you know, Hester's um, a show that I'm hoping to get away next year. Uh, it's big, bold, um, sweeping sands, romance, sort of very epic um, in tone. Um, the one that sits before that, uh, Women in Temptation, which is an adaptation of a Czech film called Women in Temptation, is uh, a fun uh, romantic comedy that looks at, you know, what happens when relationships break down and people are at their most raw uh, emotionally when it comes to to, to love? Um, you know that's being written by Ben Miller, the comedian for us, and uh, directed by James Griffiths. Um, so I think that's the one that's going to go early next year, uh, which is fun. And then Spitfire Girls. I mean, that is again true life stories, military story, um, women that flew for the air transport auxiliary during the Second World War. Um, amazing group of women from a disparate sort of range of class and background and religious sort of uh, history and were just thrown together in this sort of melting pot of uh, of the war where they were delivering the new planes out from the factories and, and collecting the, the broken and damaged planes and taking them back to the factories. So, you know, an amazing background, but actually it's more about the touch points that existed between the the different uh, characters within the group and when the Americans arrived, how they responded to them. And it was a, you know, it was a heady time. They're, they're, you know, a lot of people look at World War Two and see it through the sort of rose-tinted filter um, where, it, you know, it was, a, it was a tough time. It was a time of austerity. It was a time of emancipation and freedoms afforded to women that previously hadn't existed. It was a time that was quite bold and bawdy and lusty, um, you know, and I, I've sort of, I've just got slightly bored of seeing these sort of starched white collar representations of the Second World War. Um, and I think through the prism of these women's lives, we can actually sort of get a truer sense of of what it was like to live through that time. I must admit, there's a, the, the, sort of reading the synopsis of it and the way you've talked about it, there's a there's kind of a, a, a kernel of, of what you're covering in Kieran Knightley's character in Imitation Game, you know, because it, yeah. yeah. it was a shock to me watching that in 2014 to see just the demarcation between what a man and a woman can do being so stark. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. I yeah, mean, there's, there's, a great, war. there's a great comment from... Um, from one of the surviving, uh, well, sadly I think she's passed now, but one of the women that survived working with the ATA. Um, how careful do I need to be about language on your podcast? You're fine. Um, yeah, I mean, she basically came out and she, you know, she had this massive argument with her, the CEO who she had been dating at the time and she just turned around and, and said, you can send me to my death, you can take me to my bed, but you won't buy me a fucking drink in the officer's mess. <laughs> right. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, sir, it's been great having you on, and obviously yep. Kajaki is out now, um, but there's one last question I'd like to ask everybody. I'm not sure if you got the preview email. Yeah. Is to uh, recommend as a British film that you think deserves either more kudos, because it's been forgotten and needs to be sort of brought to people's attention, or indeed a more recent film that maybe didn't get 
the plaudits and popularity that it deserved that you've seen? Ooh. <laughs> oh, that's tough. And it, obviously the, the salesman within me obviously wants to champion Kajaki and say that every, all of your listeners need to, to get out to the cinema and see that. But let's take that as... Well, uh, we're saying uh, that with the podcast, aren't we? Yeah, we're saying that with the podcast itself. Um, gosh, it's a, tr- it's a tricky one, Stuart. I mean, I would probably point to... There's a film that I'm, I'm involved in at the moment and um, we're doing a, a, a sort of reboot for one of the studios and it's a brilliant film about the effects of, of war. It's a First World War story. It's called Random Harvest. Mm-hmm. And Random Harvest was played by Ronald Coleman and, and Jermaine Greer... Greer Gearson, sorry. Um, and is a 19... Uh, 1952... Either 48 or 52, I think it is. I'm probably completely wrong. Um, and it looks at... It's one of the first early films that looks at the whole notion of shell shock and PTSD. And it's just remarkable as a modern filmmaker to be able to go back and uncover what, for me, is in the very essence of a British classic that if you were to probably ask a dozen people, only two would, would have heard of. Um, so the film's called Random Harvest. It's black and white. It's a beautiful story of love that's lost through shell shock. Um, and I'm hoping that in the not-too-distant future, you might see um, our version of that story. Brilliant. Well, look, well, thank you very much for your time, Gareth. And Oh, you're still there? Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, no worries, really enjoyed talking to you, Stuart. Indeed, no, it's, I mean, it's an amazing story in of itself, but also an amazing story of, in terms of pulling the film together as well. Thank you. All righty. It's podcast. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.